Section 7 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. First Decade, Chapter 2, From the First Invasion of Scotland to the Commencement of the French War, Part 3. Edward returned home, highly delighted with all that he had seen in France, and so full of friendly feelings toward its sovereign, that he proposed a double alliance between the royal houses, by which his brother should be united to one of Philip's daughters, and his sister Eleanor should become the wife of the heir of France. Thus it was that though the fortresses and Agenois claimed under the Treaty of 1327 were not mutually restored, nor homage duly done according to the requirements of the French king, Amicable personal relations continued for a time to subsist between the two courts. But in Aquitaine a hostile spirit was at work. The English had garrisoned Saintes, a frontier town, and the Count of Alençon, who had been sent to watch over French interests in this quarter, exceeding his instructions, attacked and took it. This act of aggression had all but kindled the war. In the Parliament held at Eltham in 1330, the king asked for a subsidy in case the French king should reject all terms of peace, and soon after directed ships to be got in readiness to convey troops to Aquitaine. But strange as it may seem, he was all the time employing commissioners to bring about an accommodation, and through their exertions a treaty was actually concluded at Bois de Vincennes, May 1330. But now the question of the incomplete homage was revived, and Edward was once more summoned before his suzerain. It should be borne in mind that by the rules of the feudal system, the forfeiture of the fief to its liege lord was the immediate consequence of a refusal to do the duty of a vassal, and in a letter to the Pope written by Mortimer's desire, at this date Edward states that he believes King Philip is preparing to enter into possession of the duchy by force, and implores the Holy Father's intercession. At the same time he writes to his seneschals in Guienne to say that if the king of France attempts to make execution in that territory without employing force, they are to dissimulate and gain time, but that force must be met by force. On the death of Mortimer in 1330, Edward wishing to re-establish friendly personal relations with the French king, executed a deed admitting that he had done him full and liege homage, and shortly afterwards went, attended by his friend Lord Montacute, who had shared with him the dangers of Mortimer's apprehension, with scarce fifteen horsemen disguised as merchants, to pay a visit to Philip. This interview seems to have led to an understanding— for the French king agreed to restore the castle of Saint, paying 40,000 livres for the damage done to it, and also admitted that he was satisfied on the subject of the homage. Peace was therefore again proclaimed between England and France in 1331, and maintained for five years unbroken by overt hostilities. In the spring of the year following this treaty, it was proposed by King Philip that he and Edward should make a joint crusade against the Saracens in the Holy Land or against the Moors of Granada. Edward's acceptance of the proposal is hardly to be wondered at, for he was at an age 
when the love of adventure, even when untinctured with religious fanaticism, is sufficient to overcome prudential considerations. It does seem strange, however, that the Lords and Commons of Parliament, untaught by the long historical series of past failures, should have acquiesced in and even encouraged such a costly, hazardous, and chimerical undertaking. They only suggested that its execution should be postponed for a time, before the lapse of which, as it came to pass, the outbreak of war with Scotland and dangers nearer home engrossed the attention and energies of the English people. That war embittered the relations between England and France, for the latter was continually assisting Scotland, either openly with ships and troops, or by secret subsidy and encouragement. The popes during the reigns of Edward's second and third were living under the protection of the kings of France, first at Lyon and afterwards at Avignon, in an exile from Rome which from its duration of nearly seventy years was called the Babylonish captivity. And indeed they came there in the first instance at the bidding of the French king, and distributed the sanctions and denunciations of the church for the most part in the interests of himself and his successors. In the summer of 1335, however, when Philip wrote to Benedict Twelfth at Avignon, saying that he was obliged by his treaties with the Scots to give them assistance, the Pope strongly warned him against the danger of embroiling England and France in war, and offered himself to act as mediator between the two kingdoms. But though no sovereign in those times willingly disregarded the Pope's suggestions, they were rarely permitted to stand in the way of personal interests or schemes of national aggrandizement. Now Philip, throughout these transactions, enjoyed one great advantage over his rival, that of having a positive and definite policy, while Edward had none. This policy, which he had inherited from his predecessors on the French throne, consisted in the endeavor to extinguish altogether the great fiefs of the crown by reducing them to absolute submission, to absorb them into the monarchy, and thus at last to weld all the provinces of France into one compact and solid dominion. Such was Philip's wise and statesmanlike aim, and to prevent his gaining it at England's expense was probably at this time the only object of King Edward, whose claim upon the throne of France had long been suffered to lie in abeyance. That claim was only revived when it became evident that hostilities à outrance were inevitable, and that a war on a defensive basis would fail to arouse the enthusiasm and satisfy the proud and adventurous spirit of the English people. Philip, meanwhile, was acting with extreme duplicity. He not only endeavored by all means in his power to undermine the loyalty of Edward's subjects in Aquitaine, where there had always been a French party and an English party, the former strongest in the country districts, the latter in the towns. But he secretly laid plans for an invasion of England in order to call off Edward's attention from the defense of his French possessions. In Sicily, Genoa, Norway, and Holland, ships were being fitted out for this object, but the authorities of those countries were induced by the representations of the English government to put a stop to these preparations. Not content, however, with secondary measures of defense, Edward created a board to advise on the best means of protecting the English coast, 
and wrote to the mayor of Bayonne, directing him to send a fleet to England to assist in repelling an expected invasion from the Norman shore. He also commanded his two admirals to take the sea, in whose commission occur words which illustrated, as they have been by the subsequent history of five centuries, no Englishman of the present day can read without some feeling of pride in his country's long traditions of glory. Whereas our progenitors, the kings of England, have been in all times past lords of the English sea on every side. These precautions were not taken too soon, for in September 1336, an attack was actually made upon the Isle of Wight and the other Channel Islands, and English commerce interrupted by French cruisers. Repeated aggressions had compelled Edward to abandon his expected conquest of Scotland, and it became every day more clear that Philip was scheming to wrest from him his French possessions. Notwithstanding all this, however, probably because his intentions were honestly pacific, possibly because he only wished to gain time for more complete preparation, the English king spared no exertions to come to an agreement with France. When, however, all his overtures were rejected, and it became evident that he was being goaded into war, he saw that it behooved him not only to muster his fleets and arm his battalions, but also to look around and strengthen himself by alliances, so as to be ready to take the field at once, unless prepared to submit unresistingly to the dictation of France. His principal object, and one in the prosecution of which he showed considerable adroitness, was to take advantage of the dissensions and jealousies of the neighbors by whom Philip was surrounded. But in order to understand the nature and extent of Edward's alliances and the powers arrayed against him, it will be desirable to take a short survey of the map of Europe at this date. End of section 7